Hello, welcome to the D&D Roundtable presented by The Tome Show. I'm your host, James Intracasso. Please use the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Just go to thetomeshow.com, click on the links in the show notes for this episode or any other, and then shop as you normally would. Today, we're talking about the impact of Kickstarter and other crowdfunding sites on the tabletop RPG industry. And then we've got an interview with Wolfgang Bauer of Cobalt Press about his current Kickstarter project, Southlands. And we are going to meet our panel. With me today at the roundtable are Rudy Basso. Hello. Dave D&D Jester Gibson. <laughs> Hello. And Barrick Blackburn. Hey, everybody. All right, guys, and today's get-to-know-you question for our panel. What is your favorite non-fantasy tabletop RPG? And let's start with you, Rudy. I am a huge fan of the Ghostbusters movie, the first one. The second one's okay, and the cartoons were good. But uh, in the 80s, they released a Ghostbuster RPG that is super easy and super fun. And one of the reasons I love it is because cool is one of your core stats. Your character's <laughs> cool level is really important. Also, because it's from the 80s, uh, in the equipment, there's a car phone, and it's like $80. So, yeah. <laughs> Dave Gibson, what is your favorite non-fantasy tabletop RPG? It's uh, For flavor and fluff, I really like the game Eclipse Phase, which is just like a great world. It's uh, post-apocalyptic, science fiction, uh, body horror kind of weird uh, world. Rules, not so much, but I'm looking forward to the fate conversion I paid money for on Kickstarter for that. Oh, nice. Yeah, well, then you know it'll be in a great rule set uh, yes. as setting you love. Uh, Barrick, what is your favorite non-fantasy tabletop RPG? Uh, assuming you mean non-fantasy, I mean, because they're all fantasies, but... Sure, um, sure. non-medieval <laughs> fantasy. I, I, sure. Um, well, aside from my own game, I would have to say Monster Hearts. Um, and it's not so much for... The, the setting or sort of the whole like young teenagers falling in love but Monster Hearts is a game where you like every time you roll the dice you are just unsure what's going to happen and sort of that sense of danger and there's other it's a game that's powered by uh, the apocalypse based on apocalypse world and there are other games like it and I haven't played any that have quite sort of captured that sense of danger so that's uh, that would be the answer I would use today. Excellent. Excellent. Well, guys, those are all great games, and everybody should go check them out. Perhaps on noblenight.com or using the affiliate links on thetomeshow.com. But since we're talking about raising some money, why don't we talk about Kickstarter? So, guys, in the interest of full disclosure, why don't we go around the table and uh, say if we have backed projects on Kickstarter. I definitely have backed several projects on Kickstarter. Probably one of the big ones people will, here will know is I backed the Order of the Stick uh, Kickstarter um, in order for them to be able to put out more content and books and things like that. Uh, so how about you, Rudy? Have you backed projects on Kickstarter? Yeah, I really like Kickstarter. I have backed, and I'm checking now, 86 projects on Kickstarter. Wow. <laughs> which um, is a lot now that I look at it. Uh, <laughs> about half of those were games or game-related. A lot of them were food-related, which I don't, I don't quite know what that means about myself. Uh, I like food, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I'm a huge fan. I love the idea of helping people realize their dream um, when they don't have the money. So it's a, it's a really great thing, and I'm in full support of it. Dave, how about you? What projects have you backed on Kickstarter, if any? 
I backed a good dozen projects, and I'm feeling a little better about that after hearing Rudy. <laughs> I, backed, yeah. I backed Bones, uh, some Shadows of Esterin, a couple of um, yeah, Eclipse Phase, some other Pathfinder stuff, the Rebuilding N-World, and Reading Rainbow. Varric Blackburn. What yes. projects have you backed on Kickstarter? And yes, I probably will use your full name because it's awesome. So I recently backed Spirit of 77, which is uh, a Powered by the Apocalypse game, the premise of which is basically like pulp 70s, like sort of like think zombies meets love boat. Um, <laughs> and there's actually like there's a free like quick start that you can download. And I downloaded and I was like, wow, that looks really nice. And you get a cool sticker that you can put on your car. Um, World of Dew, uh, which is a spinoff of John Wick's uh, Blood and Honor, which is his samurai game, which is a spinoff of Houses of the Blooded. Uh, and I actually backed a project for a former student of mine who's releasing a comedy album. So I wanted to support him. And, uh, you know, he was looking for money to sort of get more studio time, better producers and stuff like that. Uh, so I have not. I've only backed five projects. So I'm, I guess, the big... I'm on the low end here, so. <laughs> well, but we've all backed, it sounds like, multiple projects through Kickstarter. And I, I wonder what the appeal is of Kickstarter, right? For uh, If anybody listening out there does not know, Kickstarter is a crowdfunding site where you essentially pay for something to be made before it's made. It's kind of like prepaying. And sometimes projects do fail and people have to get their money back and that sort of thing. Well, in, theory, in theory, they get their money back. In, in theory. Yes, yeah, uh, it does not always happen, as I'm sure Rudy can tell us. Um, yeah. But what is what is the big appeal of Kickstarter? What makes it interesting? And Rudy, let's start with you, since you have backed so many projects. What is it that you really like about Kickstarter? Again, I, I really appreciate that people have these awesome ideas, and they want to make them happen, but they don't have the capital to, to get it going initially. So I, I just really like helping people. <laughs> I'm, I'm an awesome person, basically, what I'm saying. I just, I, I really do like helping people uh, help realize their, their goals and, and creative dreams a lot of the times. Because I know it's difficult to, uh, to get, put yourself out there with something. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think as a creator, you probably understand at least some of the struggles, right, that people are going through. Yeah. Uh, Barrick, what do you think the appeal of Kickstarter is? I think the appeal is that that you can uh, sort of have a have a say in products you want to see get developed uh, through people who have uh, amazing and astounding ideas sometimes, and sometimes not. Uh, but you can sort of help someone sort of see their project to uh, fruition. So I think that that's a good thing in sort of supporting creators doing creative things. Dave, what do you think? the appeal of Kickstarter is? Uh, a lot of the time, it's probably a really good deal because you're getting it on the ground floor. And so sometimes it's you just pay a little bit less than you'd get at, uh, at if you're buying at a retail store because you're almost buying directly from the manufacturer. So it feels very profitable. If you search RPG on Kickstarter, you know, over a thousand projects will come up. Uh, some, granted, are more uh, video game style things that are coming up, but a lot of them are tabletop RPGs or mods for games that have open systems, that sort of thing. And you can look around and you can see which ones are funded and which ones are not. And it seems like a lot of the big ones that get funded are are already big players in the industry, right? Like if Monty Cook does a Kickstarter, he will get funded. 
There's no doubt about it. When Cobalt Press does a Kickstarter these days, there's no doubt about that they're going to get funded. Um, what does this mean for the industry as a whole? The little guy, it also sort of gives more of a chance to? Um, or does it mean that these medium sized publishers, you know, who don't have the power of, say, a Watsi or a Paizo behind them, are given more of a chance. What do you think, Dave? I think it's a good way for the, the middle guy to get in. Because if you're a nobody, you really have to go up there with your A-game. You need to have a really good video. You need to be able to prove that you can complete your goals. And that's really hard. If, you, if you've actually done a few projects before, if you have something on, say, like drive through or if you've done something um, for about as a third-party product, and you've proven that you can deliver... Um, that's probably um, better to do on your own. And then after you've established yourself, you can Kickstarter. So Kickstarter's middle ground. Rudy, do you agree? Yeah, I think for those bigger guys, it's more of a, a pre-order system um, than anything else. Monty Cook knows, hey, I'll, I'll probably get my money. And then uh, we'll see how much I can get. And from there, uh, see how long I can just keep working on this particular project. But some of the stuff I've backed is for very small publishers. First time, like... I backed a game called The Last Stand, which is about um, aliens have invaded, invaded Earth, and the players have to get in armor that looks like insects and fight off the aliens. Like, that's very strange and uh, very small, small time. But these guys, they got $11,000. I backed another game called Tremulous. Again, it was a small-time publisher they've, or developer. They've never made anything before, and they got a lot of good money. So I think it's a great opportunity for people that would like to break into the industry that have a really cool idea, a really cool system, and are good writers. Barrack Blackburn, what are your yes. thoughts? How, how do you think that this helps out the RPG industry? I have very mixed thoughts. I think it, I think it's a wonderful thing on one hand. I feel that some of the larger projects are starting to to go the way of uh, some abuses, as it were. So, you know, and not necessarily RPGs, but if you look at like the films that have been financed and stuff like that, like you know, you still have to pay for it and you still have to to pay for these things and you're not necessarily getting anything extra. I've seen Kickstarters where if you kickstart the project, you get it significantly earlier before anyone else, like months or years before. And I sort of like that model. Like you get in, as someone said, on the ground floor. But if you're just using it to to support a project and you know you're going to make $500,000, I I don't know. I, I sort of I have some issue with that. Like I believe that that's where like you can go to a bank and say I want to start a company, and the bank could say great. So I, I I'm torn. I'm very torn about it. I like it, and I like seeing good projects out there. Um, but I definitely have some mixed feelings about the whole thing. Uh, Monte Cook, for instance, he probably does not have the twenty thousand dollars just lying around that you would need for Numenera, but. If Monte Cook probably approached a publisher and said, I need $20,000 to make you a new game, he may be able to get that. I don't know. What do you think? Dave Gibson? It's, well, it's, <laughs> if you're a bigger publisher like that, you could also, also do pre-orders on your website. I mean, there's no reason Monte Cook um, couldn't just set up a website and have pre-orders for his latest game and use that money to fund the book. Kickstarter almost seems a little irrelevant, but if you're a mid-level um, Mid-level publish. That's all good for gauging interest in side games and accessories. So you can throw the, the Kickstarter out there. And if it raises enough money, then you can go through with it. If it doesn't, you haven't committed. Yeah. I think the, the timeline is also different because Kickstarter is much farther ahead. 
you you Kickstarter and then you start working on it a little bit. Whereas if you start taking pre-orders, you're expected to have it out much much sooner. So it's a little bit more of a risk. Yeah, I uh, I think Dave, what you're talking about, I think of like the early access system that a lot of video games have now. The problem is with RPGs, if you if you someone pre-orders, they don't get like anything. Uh, I feel like when a lot of these companies come to Kickstarter, their product is pretty much done already. They're just getting the money to make these print runs. Uh, it's a huge risk for any publisher to make an RPG product, as the 80s and 90s have told us. Even something that seems like it'll be a surefire hit um, completely dies, and no one buys it, and you're left with 70,000 books that no one's buying. So uh, Kickstarter is a great way to have a guaranteed audience there going in. The thing about Kickstarter, too, is there are different levels and different tiers. So you can have someone paying $1,000 to have lunch with Monty Cook, um, and that's an awesome $1,000 that doesn't take a lot of Monty Cook's time, whereas getting just $15 for a pre-order isn't as much. It's, I know that uh, Green Ronin Green Ronin has said that they also use Kickstarter gauge how much interest is in a project. Because well, they've had times where people have been like, oh, we'll buy that book if you put it out there. And then they've done a Kickstarter and it just hasn't funded. And so it's a way for people, um, people to put their money where their mouth is and actually prove that they're interested in the book before they start investing in it. And it's also a good way to find out if, if it's really successful, you can also make the book bigger, So which is the stretch goals aspect. Yeah. So, you can, so it's the more money people put in, the bigger and better the book you can get. Whereas if you just put it up for pre-order, you might just lowball it, figuring that only so many people will be interested and it, you could have actually sold a bigger book. So it lets you know how big of a book you can make. Numenera, uh, did anyone, I don't know if anyone backed that project, anyone here? Um, no. So what's aware. fascinating is that you can go to, to the world's largest retailer and you can get a copy for $40. So my guess is that all the money that that project made went into not just producing that book, but making a tidy profit for Monty Cook, as well as making it so he could publish hard copies of that book to sell in retail stores. So you know, yes, you are gauging interest, but you're not you're not getting something exclusive. And you look at Onyx Path, which used to be the White Wolf properties, and you know, their Exalted did over six hundred thousand uh, dollars. You know, for stuff, and that project is it was kickstarted a while ago, and they haven't released anything for it yet, which is fine. Um, but these are companies that do, you know, it's fine for that initial sort of infusion of cash, but then the Strange made four hundred something thousand dollars as well for Monty Cook. So you look at like these really big companies that keep going back to the well and you look at Zach Brass movie, you look at even Reading Rainbow, you know, what you're getting there. What are you getting for that support? It's, is it a fundraiser? Like, is it like a nonprofit sort of thing? Or are you, you know, saying, hey, I like this project. I'm going to support it. I feel good. And, you know, and then you you look at projects that don't, you know, get off the ground that are someone's, you know, uh, you know, hard work and sweat and dreams and they are, are squashed and that's fine. There's not support for the project. More people want to support a dude eating potato salad awesome but what's it say about the big picture when you have potato salad making $55,000 which is a tenth of what the strange made or, or a little an eighth of what the strange made and the strange did that need to be supported or did Monty Cook have enough goodwill and and literal money in the bank that he could have done the strange on his own you are promised something in return often when you do donate to Kickstarter. And Rudy, I know you ran into this problem with a uh, woman who 
made um, brownies, brownies, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 T- tell us a little bit about that story and what uh, it means when someone can't actually meet the demand of all the things they're promising. Well, she had wanted something like $1,000 for brownies, and she had ended up getting something like $50,000 for brownies. And she had not been prepared to start a company, essentially, is what she was going to have to do, to to meet the demand. And as a result, she became further and further behind, and the abuse from the backers became more and more vitriol, maybe we'll say. And eventually it got to the point where she said, I, I don't want to do this anymore, I here's all your money, and she began refunding people. Uh, That's not really the case for a lot of these, though. Again, I feel like when someone goes into a Kickstarter with an RPG, it's already done. You you don't have to worry about um, programming a video game and getting art assets and things like that. The biggest worry is if you're doing a print run, getting a publisher to print your book, and if you need art or something, hiring your artist. For the most part, that's why I think RPGs are a great, great tool on Kickstarter or a great place to go to to get funding is you don't have a lot of overhead um, to worry about. Well, there, I, have, I have two comments. One is, having having done a Kickstarter, I can say that not always is that project written. There are times legitimately where you're like, let's see if there's enough interest for this, and if there's enough support, and let's see what we're going to get in terms of art and what we're going to get in terms of of you know sort of fun stretch goals or fun people that may come right for so and that and again we're sort of small press but you know you would call medium tier and that we've released some projects so we're not just starting out but so I will say that that I mean we did these projects were not complete we had the idea but there was a lot of work to be done and some of them I believe are pretty complete so I won't disagree with you but I will say that that that's not always the case you have your own Kickstarter yeah yeah talk about that for a second I wrote a game, and we did a supplement for that game, which we kickstarted. Uh, so I, I wrote a game called Capes, Cows, and Villains Foul, a uh, superhero game. And then we did a supplement called The Gallery of Evil, which was sort of a big villain book. Uh, my publisher said, people love villain books. So I said, great. And so we uh, kickstarted that and made some money. And then we released uh, the third edition of Cartoon Action Hour, and we kickstarted that to see sort of how we could do because we don't have a lot of sort of I, I don't see the books, but we don't necessarily have a lot of money put away in the bank. So we don't necessarily know like, oh, we have these awesome artists. So this truly was to see like what can we get in terms of art? What can we get in terms of sort of stuff? Like we had the creative aspect done in terms of the writing. We knew that that would get done. But, you know, an RPG, you do want art for it. So um, so we kickstarted that and that was, you know, we made uh, ten, eleven, twelve thousand $12,000, something like that. And we're still... We're working on sort of delivering the stretch goals to people. We're working on, for the one I did, we've had serious printing problems. Every copy we've ordered has come back with serious printing flaws. So I think we finally solved that. So, you know, I can say that there are some trials and tribulations, and we've certainly learned some things for future Kickstarters if we do them. But, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating thing. And it, it's, it's wonderful to see people support your thing and say, wow, this is great. Rudy, have you ever been involved in a Kickstarter <laughs> where you didn't get your reward or your money back? If you want a refund, you can ask for it. But at that point, I'm just, I, I consider that part of the risk of Kickstarter. You know, this isn't an investment. This is essentially charity, and I'm being promised a reward. And if someone doesn't, you know, come through with a reward, then that's how it goes, unfortunately. You are not an investor. You, this is a charity, essentially. It is crowdfunding, not crowd investing. Yeah, it's more like when you give your money to PBS and they send you an Elmo mug. Then yeah. and that's it. You don't you don't get anything else for yeah. your you know your fifty you get wonderful PBS programming. Yeah. Well, I I think that 
they're working on changing their terms of service in that regard because uh, Kickstarter is different than GoFundMe, which offers nothing in return. Yeah, more people want to take legal action on these Kickstarters that aren't coming through, so they're kind of moving in a way that binds these project creators to legal action if they don't follow through. Well, and I can't, you know, if I paid $50 to get a book, I would be upset, but then if I paid $1,000 to have a walk-on role in a movie... I would be really upset if that didn't go through. So do you guys think that this is going to be a sustainable thing for the tabletop RPG industry? Uh, What do you think, Dave? Let's start with you. I think it's going to eventually reach critical mass because there's so many Kickstarters now and so many um, many people are supporting them that eventually there's going to be just too many Kickstarters to support and people's monies are going to get stretched thinner and thinner and thinner. And then people are just going to get a lot more stingy with the Kickstarters they have. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's going to be a whole lot of Kickstarters that are going unfunded because it's just it's not enough money to go around. And once it crashes like that, I think that people will stop being as hasty to just launch a Kickstarter. And then at that point, do you think it's only the the Monte Cooks and the Wolfgang Bowers of the world who have a shot on Kickstarter? Or do you think that mid-level press will be able to bounce back from the critical mass once it's reached. I think people will be a little bit more cautious when they start doing Kickstarters. Once it, uh, once people start having a couple failed Kickstarters or really uh, putting some risks out and losing money in Kickstarters, which does happen apparently quite a bit, then they might start only um, putting projects that they really want to Kickstart out. They're doing it the, uh, the really important stuff that's important to them rather than just everything. Yeah. Barrick, what do you think, especially as somebody who's done a Kickstarter for tabletop RPGs, do you think this is a sustainable thing? Do you agree with Dave that there's a a critical mass we're going to reach? Or do you think it's going to evolve into something else? It would depend who you talk to. I think some people would say there is a critical mass. I mean, you can do a search for, you know, RPGs or, you know, people wanting to publish their books on, you know, via Kickstarter. And you can see that a person wants $1,500 and they've made 40. You know, and there's there's three days left in their Kickstarter. So, you know, you do have plenty of sort of failures out there, which which leads you to believe that there is a, a that you've reached critical mass. I think it, it'll be interesting to see what Kickstarter does with this, because I think Kickstarter could make a lot of money if they decided to sort of partner up with a publishing firm. Because if you look at, uh, you know, people who self-publish their books through Amazon and have done that, and I have a friend who did that, and he he wrote a book, this 600-page book, and, and sold it to Amazon, and he's sold uh, like 2,000 copies, he's up for some Amazon award for best horror novel, he's made like $5,000, that's awesome, I mean, I've made hundreds of dollars in my uh, game writing career, literally hundreds of dollars, so... <laughs> You know, I mean, my book's a, it's a good seller for our publisher, you know, and, and, you know, that's, that's what the deal is. So I think if they can sort of partner with a publishing firm and say, yep, and you can publish your book, whether it's an RPG or a novel or a book of, you know, weird Sudoku, whatever you want to do and say, you know, you can do it and get the support and we will sort of be your one stop to get everything done. I think that could be great and a great avenue for them to make money. Um, is it sustainable? Sure, because people are going to keep buying it. Rudy, what do you think? Is this a sustainable model for the tabletop RPG industry? I do. I'm going to disagree with the D&D jester, and I hope that does not make me the target of his jabbery in the future. Uh, <laughs> you won't throw a book at him? <laughs> I think um, perhaps in other industries, the bubble is bursting. I know in video games, more and more projects are not coming through, and people are becoming a lot more hesitant to back i think again because rpgs don't require a lot 
of work necessarily and i'm not trying to denigrate you barrick i know I i'm sure you put a lot of work into your book but in terms of like um it's not a video game <laughs> exactly it's not a video game it's not baking twenty thousand brownies people love different things and when the dragon hunting ghost rpg where you're also have machine guns comes out tomorrow i'm gonna go back the hell out of that because that sounds really cool <laughs> and the other thing is a lot of these are low entry for for a lot of them, because of the, they can be made PDFs. Like it's ten bucks, which people don't mind throwing ten bucks at a really cool sounding idea. It's uh, one thing I was thinking of is that there might be also spikes of activity in Kickstarter's. I know that after the uh, Reaper Bones kick, um, Kickstarter's appeared, I threw a bunch of money at that, and then just stayed the hell away from Kickstarter for six months because I threw a couple hundred dollars into Bones. And so I think when the the must have projects come around, people will really throw their money at that, and then maybe back away from Kickstarter a bit. And there's sure. also seasonal pressure, such as Christmas. Like you don't back projects on Kickstarter around Christmas. And you don't launch around Christmas because everyone's buying Christmas presents, and January as well because everyone's poor post Christmas. <laughs> but in like you know May or June, people might have a little bit more disposable money, so so they might have like more seasonal ups and downs in Kickstarter. So what do you guys think? Does this have a, a bigger impact on companies like Watsi, or does it not really matter? Uh, and why don't we start with you, Rudy? You know, we asked Mike Merles this question in our interview at Gen Con, which you can listen to on the Um <laughs> He seemed to be very supportive of all the RPGs. I honestly, I'm no businessman, but I feel like it's such a niche hobby that if someone backs something on Kickstarter that they really like, they're going to step away from D&D and play that instead. You know, you only have so much time during the week. And with more and more RPGs coming out, Something else might like that. What did I say? Ghost dragon hunting game with machine guns. <laughs> I might chase that and play that instead of D and D and stop buying D and D products. So I think it's good that the hobby is becoming more popular because of Kickstarter, but it's bad because these new people might not gravitate towards the bigger RPGs. They might find something more smaller and more hobby specific that they like. Yeah, I think that's a that that maybe is a good point that it may have an impact because it's already such a small market to begin with. Uh, what do you think, Barrick? You know, yeah, you, you talk about D and D, and so D and D. So it was announced they're releasing their three books, and they have sort of their their event books, but they're not. Who's putting out their adventures? That would be Cobalt Press. You know, there's a lot of money put into D&D in the development of the game. There's a lot of people on staff. You know, millions of dollars have been spent on it. I, I could imagine. I'll put on my tinfoil hat and say that I imagine they're looking at it and saying, well, let's let's have Cobalt Press do some of the legwork for us, and let's see how D&D does, and then we can decide what we want to do next with D&D. They're such a big company, I don't think they want to go the Kickstarter route because I think it would seem amateurish for them, I would imagine. I mean, they're, they're a big company. I mean, and, and Monty Cook can make a lot of money but it's monty cook games it's one guy we all know monty cook he's a guy you know and you're like oh it's monty cook that's cool and onyx press is is trying to go for sort of that indie vibe i think and and most of their projects have been just rehashes of other stuff or sort of new editions of other stuff i think that kickstarter they're definitely looking at it and they're seeing what's doing well and that they are working on developing products that they will release uh, in a year's time, um, because I, their publishing schedule is very light. Um, so I think that they're hoping that 5th edition does well and uh, that they can see some other stuff and that they are looking at Kickstarter and watching it 
And there, I don't see them doing it, but I see them sort of learning from it, as it were. Yeah, I think you're right. I think their eyes are definitely on it, for sure. Dave? So I have to agree with Rudy in that somewhat, in that uh, it, it's going to take money away from D&D. The more money I spend on other games, not to name any names, uh, it's just less money I'm going to spend on D&D of any type. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of niche games that might appeal to people who aren't playing D&D. And the more people are just being brought into the hobby, it's just better for the hobby in general. I think it also depends on what Wizards of the Coast decides on for um, third-party support. Because if they have a fairly broad open game license and they encourage people to make third-party games, then that um, Kickstarter might be a good way for that, um, for people to make those types of books. And if you need to buy the player's handbook to make use of this third-party game, then it's really good for Wits to the Coast, because then there's a bunch of people making these niche products that they don't need to make, mm-hmm. which are still going to be uh, funneling sales towards the core rule books. You know, we've already seen some unofficial <laughs> third-party D&D oh, yeah. 5e stuff on Kickstarter come out, right? Yes. Um, and so it's going to be interesting to see uh, if they do ever launch that OGL that Mike Merles was talking about back in, in the summer. You know, if they do launch that, are we going to see crazy Kickstarters start to pop up for this is going to be my D&D 5e project and this is my project and this I, I imagine we will. Uh, and I wonder, too, if that will also take even more of a direct bite out of the things that they want to put out. Um, and speaking of Kickstarter, guys, we do have all of these other sites. You know, I know GoFundMe was mentioned, which is, you know, uh, it, it works sort of like Kickstarter, but there is nothing that you get in return. It, it doesn't seem to be used as much for for artistic products necessarily. It seems a lot of times it's used for people who might be in need or who need education funding or that kind of thing. Um, Though I suppose you probably could put uh, some sort of arts thing up there if you wanted to, or some sort of creative process. Uh, Indiegogo, I think is, is another thing that has a crowdfunding model. Uh, You know, that has a little bit more of the Kickstarter model. Uh, Patreon, um, which invites you to sort of. uh, Patreon's different. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's different. It's really, really cool. Yeah. So let's let's talk about these. Do you think there are some better models out there, Rudy? What is Patreon? Uh, Patreon. It. Uh. It's if I'm a creator, it'll pay, and I like say I write. Um. I don't know articles on video games that are really interesting, and people love them. What it happens is every time I write an article, I get two dollars from people. Like people subscribe to me. Mm-hmm. It's different than uh, Kickstarter because there's no like goal. It's a way for someone who's a creator who who releases content regularly to get paid for that content. A lot of popular YouTubers do it. Some podcasts do it. Um, it's a really neat model, but it's much different than Kickstarter. Uh, I don't think any other crowdfunding site has the name value that Kickstarter does. I don't know. South Park just had an episode where Kickstarter was plastered over it. If I'm trying to do a crowdfunding thing i'm definitely going to kickstarter because indiegogo is just not as popular barrack you brought up when we were talking about doing this you brought up patreon um what do you think are there better models out there for uh tabletop rpgs specifically well i patreon is great so i i uh, support a patreon project that basically the author says, I'm going to try and put something out monthly, and this is what it costs you to get what I'm putting out. And 
you know, he's making, I don't know, 600, 900. But I, I don't know how much he's making. You can see on the thing how much people have funded for it. But it's a really, it's a neat idea. And, and I like it because there's that sense of exclusivity. Like there's a sense of like, I bought something that you can't get. And that's not to say you couldn't go and, and buy it and pay this person money for it. Uh, but it, it's unlike sort of, uh, you know, these Kickstarters where you're like, I'm getting it on the ground floor or something that I can then get on Amazon. Like, you know, so I I didn't support Numenera, but I was like, ah, you know, my folks are like, what do you want for Christmas? I was like, Numenera, you know, why not? Um, I need to name something. So I like it. And I also like it because you're supporting someone that, that you like and they don't get any money unless they put out a product. So, you know, if, if the person I'm supporting decides not to put something out for three months, they don't get any money. And then they decide to like, great, I'm going to put something out. They can take my five dollars or whatever i've pledged to them so it's sort of neat and it's sort of you saying like i like what you're doing keep doing it and it's it's definitely a sort of different way it's 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 they call it it's patronage so it's it's that old school patronage think back to the renaissance when you you know someone gives da vinci money to go do painting so it's the same sort of thing you're saying i like what you are making so it's a it's a neat thing dave what do you think is there a better model out there for tabletop rpgs as far as crowdfunding goes Bigger publishers, I think just pre-orders is probably the way to go. But for smaller ones, Kickstarter is probably pretty good just because everyone knows the site and you trust Kickstarter. You're not giving your credit card number information to this guy who has a website, mm-hmm. which is a little bit worrisome. But yeah, if, it's, if I'm paying something from buying something from Monty Cook, yeah, Monty Cook can have my, my credit card information. <laughs> <laughs> it's other sites if you are a, a medium-type publisher who is also good at taking credit cards – it's actually probably a bit more cost-effective to get away from Kickstarter, just because you're not uh, Kickstarter isn't taking a little percentage of your money, and Amazon isn't taking a little percentage of your money. So setting up your own kind of crowdfunding model on your website might actually be kind of affordable. So I can see a few people just kind of setting up their own Kickstarter-esque design. All right, guys. Well, speaking of Kickstarter, we have a Kickstarter interview with Wolfgang Bauer. He's going to talk to us about his Southlands Kickstarter, which is a sort of pulp campaign setting uh, where you can set your fantasy RPG. I believe it's uh, for Pathfinder, but it sounds like there's going to be a lot of universal story stuff there you could use for any system. So uh, let's roll the interview. Rolling! Wolfgang, thanks for being here on the roundtable with me today. We know that you're running this Kickstarter for the Southlands, which is a Pathfinder RPG option for the Midgar setting. Yeah, sort of for Midgard. Actually, I don't even know that I would go that far. I would say that we're doing it in the Cobalt Press tradition, which is, yeah, our default setting is Midgard, but really, we make stuff that you can loot for your game. That's the way we've designed from the start. Which is excellent. So let's talk about then what are the Southlands? How can I bring them into my game? Sure. Um, It's sort of a – I keep describing it as if Indiana Jones decided to to run a Pathfinder campaign, it would turn out a little bit like the Southlands because it's it's a fusion of of some Egyptian – elements. It's got a lot of Arabian Nights influence. It's got some African influence, Persian bits, a lot of high fantasy, and a lot of tombs and lost cities, right? So the first video we wanted to do for this thing was, let's take a map and draw a red line from like the pyramids <laughs> to the jungle city, and then out to the oasis of the gym, 
right? Um, and then we realized we didn't actually have a map, so we, we didn't make that video. Uh, <laughs> me talking to a camel. Uh, <laughs> it's gr- I love that video. I love it. I love it, too. We, we try to have a sense of humor about it, right? Because, like, well, if you've been following us for a while, you sort of know what we do, right? It's like, well, we do RPG stuff. We do it for players. We do it for game masters. Um, but, but we try to have fun with it. So... So yeah, the Indiana Jones angle is one way to think about it. It's really a lot of material that's like any place that um, that you might ride a camel through, any place that's hot, any place with uh, fallen empires and uh, a lot of genies and mummies and sort of, I keep calling it pulp fantasy is the other thing, right? There's a pretty clear dividing line in the Southlands between like good guys and bad guys. We don't, we don't mess around a lot with Shades of Grey here. Um, there's a little room for that. But really what we want to do is drop you in a place where you can go uh, loot the pyramid, um, be attacked by the Knoll raiders as you take your sand ship back to base, right? Uh, defeat the Knolls, but capture one of them who tells you, oh, I swear, I swear we found a lost tomb of the elephant god. Let me live and I'll show you where it is, right? Um, it's those kinds of adventures where uh, it's a little heavier on action and a little clearer on uh, goals. Mm-hmm. So, so the project itself is split up into two or three pieces. Um, one is sort of setting and character options. It's all like archetypes and magic and, hey, what's this kingdom and where are the lost cities anyway? Uh, one of them is called Nine Arabian Nights. It's nine adventures uh, written by some of the best in the business. Um, People like Jim Groves and Jeff Grubb and Zeb Cook and Amber Scott uh, are all contributing to the Nine Arabian right. Nights collection. So Yourself, like a separate book too, right? I I actually have two adventures in there too. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm the publisher. I'm allowed to give myself two, right? Of course, um, of course. And they're short. These I won't say it's like nine mega campaign adventures, right? They're mm-hmm. all like ten or. Yeah, 10 to 15 page adventure. So, you know, multiply by nine, you got a 100 page book. Um, and they're meant to be played fairly swiftly, right? Like, you could put them in between episodes of Legacy of Fire or The Mummy's Mask or De- Desert of Desolation or your Al Qadim campaign that you've, you know, upgunned from second edition. Um, all of those things are, are possibilities. Um, and then there's a third book that I'm really excited about because it's we're so close. <laughs> it's called The Southland's Bestiary. And anybody who knows me knows I'm a giant monsterholic. I, I think monster books are awesome and have, have loved writing monsters and contributing to the, uh, the Paizo bestiaries occasionally. And, and like every one of my adventures, I try and get a new monster in there. So what we're trying to do here is if we have enough backers, and we're like 20 people short right now, <laughs> but if we get just a little more support, uh, we're going to take the opportunity to make a whole monster book for the Southlands, which is, again, mega portable to Galarian or the Realms or wherever the heck you like. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's going to be monsters that come out of, you know, Ray Harryhausen movies or uh, new science discoveries like the Spinosaurus, which National Geographic reported on. And, oh, my God, I saw this thing. The artist <laughs> did a great job. The, the fossil researchers were, like, doing their thing. And I'm like, oh, if that isn't a, a Pathfinder, if that isn't a fantasy monster, right, there's something <laughs> wrong. What do you mean this was a real creature? It was, like, the largest predator in 
millions of years, and it's sort of like a crocodile on steroids meets a T-Rex. Oh, it's so cool. We actually, we have a, uh, I work at National Geographic, and we have a huge statue of a life-size Spinosaurus outside our offices right now. It's amazing. Lucky dog. Yeah. Yeah, the scale of the thing is just terrifying, right? And I mean, I've been to the Field Museum in Chicago and gotten up close to Sue, uh, the T-Rex mm. there, who is, again, one of those figures that's like, well, all of a sudden I feel really small and um, <laughs> I feel like prey. Huh. <laughs> I'm having a learning moment here. <laughs> Mammals were not the kings of the world at that time. Um, but, you know, we want to make that into, uh, into a Pathfinder monster, right? And, and put it in the rivers in the Southlands because it was an aquatic predator. Uh, well, aquatic sort of. I mean, it had legs, and it's still not clear to me whether it got out on land and killed stuff there too or not. <laughs> <laughs> the impression I got from National Geographic was it's a little like a killer hippo, mm-hmm. right? And it can wander out onto land, but it's comfortable in water. You can't escape. Exactly. Yes. Oh, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we're taking stuff from from real world sources. There, of course, we're taking stuff from uh, Egyptian mythology, African mythology, Arabian mythology that that just happens not to have been covered in the uh, the Paizo bestiaries yet. And we're doing all new stuff too, right? Um, so we've got like twenty monsters now. One of them's available in a preview PDF that's just called the Crystalline Demon. Um, you can pick it up for free at, at Paizo or drive through as the Southlands preview PDF. It's like eight pages shows you kind of like what we're aiming for. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's like, do we put a preview out? We know it's not done. There's probably some typos. Hmm. Eh, people want to see what it's like, right? So it's, okay, one monster and a little like setting section and then a, a section on the cult of Bastet. Oh, my goodness, we go to town in Southlands with the cult of Bastet, who is the the cat goddess, right, of Egypt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've learned all sorts of crazy stuff about her, like she was the patron of perfumes back in the day, and she was tight with the alchemists. Um, and we've made her also a bit of a patron of the Knolls. Uh, the Knolls uh-huh. like her. She's furry. She likes her furry followers. Um, and And we've given her a whole city that is a somewhat interplanar crossroads kind of city. We call it the Per Bastet, the city of cats. <laughs> um, and yeah, no, it's wonderful. It's a great way for anybody to, to say, well, you know, I don't really want to do like a long Egyptian Arabian desert thing, but I want to do a stopover just so they can be hunted by a Spinosaurus. And so how do I get them there? Right? <laughs> it's like as a game master, well, how do I do that? Well, the city of cats is basically um, accessible to cats at all times, right? House cats, lions, felines of all kinds can always get to the city of cats to meet their goddess. All they have to do is like, you know, go down the right alleyway and um, they, it becomes a planar pathway and presto. Next thing you know, they're walking out of an alleyway in, in the city of cats. And so we've got a, a full write-up with the cat goddess and new domains and the priesthood and the, the gladiatorial arena there because cats can be nasty. Um, <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's a full-blown city um, that one of the Cobalt crew, Ted Reed, has been running as his campaign for a year. Um, so it's a really rich crossroad city, but 
if you want to visit, all it takes is, you know, for the players to say, yeah, okay, we'll follow that black cat down the alley. And next thing you know, there they are. And they can leave the same way. Oh, so um, cool. Yeah. So we're really, really trying to make sure that everybody has the chance to, like, get in touch with some of the coolest Egyptian stuff. Like, we want to make sure everybody can just eat the frosting if that's what they want. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the Southlands goes a lot deeper, too, for people who want to, like, adopt more of it or just loot it for parts, right? It's like, I'm taking this lost city over here. I'm taking this whole nation over here. It's like we've got a kingdom of um, wind spirits and genies, right? It's it's the domain, dominion of the wind lords. Oh. Jin uh, rule over humans in this desert plateau. It feels so al Qadim. It, it, it hurts, right? It's like... <laughs> <laughs> It's a beautiful piece of art. We just got some sketches in, too, showing the court of the genies. And there's this great sultanic jinn and all his followers, which includes some, like, cat folk and a couple of gnolls and some dwarves with big Egyptian-style beards. Um, but basically, the genies are in charge. They, uh, they're having a little civil war among some of the nobles. Um, and, you know, if you wanted to take that kingdom and just plop it out onto some desert plateaus... Um, pretty much anywhere, right? In your homebrew campaign where there's a desert. Oh. Um, it's the sort of thing that you can just hand wave as, well, there's been a mirage disguising this kingdom and people go missing in the sands there all along. And, you know, you the border and have met some of the, the djinn born here. And, you know, off you go. Now you're just your adventure among the genies. Um, oh, so cool. Yeah. Oh, the best part about it, I mean, so many good parts about that genie kingdom, I, I can't even say. But um, one part is there's Stephen Radney McFarland, the, uh, the designer at, at Paizo Publishing. He's on staff there, but he's helped the Kobolds out a couple of times. He helped us on Deep Magic, too. And he's writing um, a supplement, a rules supplement called The Ginborn, uh, about characters who have. I put it. Uh, they have they have genie patrons, basically, right? Wow. So they're a little bit like witches, or they're a little bit like mm, sorcerers with a genie bloodline. I, in that direction, right? Gotcha. They've got genie blood, and and so they have extra powers and they have extra abilities, and certainly they they fit really well into the Arabian Nights sorts of themes, or any desert sorts of themes, or into a place like Dominion of the Wind Lords. Hmm. And so we're trying to make every slice of cake in the Southlands be, like, exciting and original and loaded with cool mechanics, often written by Paizo staff or Paizo freelancers, um, and, and to give you, like, this huge buffet, this smorgasbord of options if you're running a campaign that winds up um, anywhere vaguely perilous, you know, full of camels and, uh, and then, you know, hot, tropical. Beneath a pitiless sun is our tagline. Um, so, so that's where we're going with it. That's like my, my top line, all the cool stuff that I'm most excited about. But, um, but it's already like a 250-page project. It's a hardcover. <laughs> like the core book is already – it was a hardcover from the start. I've run a bunch of Kickstarters where I got a little Weasley at the start. I'm, like, I'm not sure anybody's going to like this topic. Let's make it a soft cover to start. <laughs> we'll make it a hardcover. 
like, no, forget that, right? <laughs> this is a hardcover from day one. We're just running with this as a hardcover. We've got enough material that it's it's just gonna um, it's gonna go that way. Uh, and we made our funding goal in like five hours on day one. So. Yeah, you know, congratulations. Are, oh, thank you. Well, you know, you build up a rep over time, and people have have picked up things like Deep Magic last year, um, and then you know they come back for the next one. Like that was pretty cool, and I've been playing with it a bunch. So yeah, okay, I'm in. Um, and and the topic. I mean, people think that you can't do. Um, I don't even want to call it a niche genre, but like. You know the less common styles of fantasy that that somehow you know you're, it, it's it's not as popular as like European centered fantasy or or something like that urban fantasy um, and it's just not true right you can do exciting stuff with um, with Asian fantasy you can do great stuff with sort of pulp fantasy mm-hmm. um, and and that's really what we're doing here we're bringing the A team of our freelancers and the A-team of our artists and cartographers. Oh my goodness. Anna Meyer is the cartographer for the Southlands. And I can't tell you how lucky we are to have her. <laughs> she's, <laughs> she's been doing cartography for the Greyhawk community for years. And she was nominated for an Annie Award uh, last year for her Greyhawk maps. And they're amazing, right? They're super detailed. They feel... They feel like a map you would pull out from the geological survey kind of survey. They're, they're more on the realistic side than the, you know, here we are drawing on parchment side. Right. But her ability with the tools she has is, she's really advanced with it. Her rivers look like rivers. She can scale stuff. These perspective views are, are like, here's the sunlight over the mountains down to the river Nuria, right? It's like, okay, <laughs> how did you do that? Well, you know, as it turns out, this mapping tool isn't just top-down. You can do these perspective views. Well, that's amazing, Anna. What else can it do? Oh, I can do videos. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean you can do videos? Yeah, it takes a couple days to render, but I can do them. <laughs> and, and we said, well, would you? Would you, you know, do a flyover of the Southlands? Maybe just over a river or some mountains or a jungle or something? And she said, sure, you know. Wait two days. <laughs> you know, she doesn't have supercomputers. She's got like I don't know a PC at her Mac at home, something like that. And and she came back like two or three days later and said, "Well, here's the video, and there's a tiny bit of flicker here that bugs me. But if you like it, you know, <laughs> like like it. Oh my God, I love it. And it's it feels like you're on Dragonback and you're just taking a flight over like this." jungle and then the mountains and then along the river and there's reflections of the sun in the water and I'm totally blown away that you know the tools we have now can make our our worlds come alive like that she's got a second flyover video she's been working on so we posted the first one out on the kickstarter page um Mm -hmm. and and people just jaws hit the floor right it's like this is the kind of stuff you're doing for this project? Yeah, we expect to do a bunch more of those. <laughs> and people are like, so we could just show this to our players or whatever? Oh, sure, yeah, no, it's it's for backers, it's for everybody. It's like, we want you to see what we're trying to do here. And, uh, 
And people say, okay, well, you've just raised the bar on cartography. And I'm like, no, no, it was pretty much all Anna, but yes, yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the project has, has just a great team of people. The artists we've gotten have all been delivering really strong. We hope to have full color illustrations of every monster in that bestiary that I talked about. Um, and we're calling on our backers to help us out with that, right? Actually, so that's one thing I wanted to, to ask you about is the bestiary. I wanted to let a lot of our listeners know, because we have plenty of listeners who play Pathfinder, who play D&D, who play everything, but a, a large amount of them do play 5th edition right now. Yeah. Uh, and it looks like you're very close to this bestiary goal, less than 30 people away. Um, yeah. And it looks like once you get hit that goal, your plan is to have a 5th edition PDF of this bestiary as well. Well, we're certainly going to do the conversions, right? We're mm-hmm. going to convert the monsters into 5th um, edition stats. And some of those monsters will have been written by our backers, right? One of the, one of the rewards as a backer of Southlands is that um, some tiers can, can throw a monster into the ring, and the best ones will be uh, will be accepted and and published and fully illustrated, right? Amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I mean, okay, I'm a game designer. I think that reward is the coolest reward there <laughs> is. But other people are like, that sounds like work, right? I don't want to do that. I'm like, you don't have to. <laughs> the people who think it's fun to write a new monster and get it published will do that. And the people who think it's like, you know, you're going to ask me to, Paint your white picket fence? I don't want to. It's like, no, no, you don't have to. It's if you think it's a chore, then just don't. Don't. We don't want to make anyone make a monster. But for people who love it, um, it's something you never get anywhere else, right? And so all those Pathfinder monsters, uh, if we hit this goal with like 20 more people, do get converted uh, to fifth edition as well. And it's really tricky. I mean, you ask a good question about what form is it going to be. Is it going to be a PDF? Are we going to post them on the blog? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. At the moment, we're being very cautious in what we say because there's no license for fifth edition content, right? Right, right. Um, and we have one big fifth edition fan who's going to do the monster conversions. Like, he started the first five already, and we're like, okay, we're going to have a fifth edition monster supplement as part of the Southlands. Wow. Um, yeah, but but will it be published and for sale anywhere? Maybe not, right? That depends on Wizards of the Coast. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be more the kind of thing where we say, well, we've done the conversions and we can't sell it through a hobby store. We're just going to put it up on the Cobalt blog or we're just going to send it out to our Southlands backers, right? Mm-hmm. And, and call it good because... We don't want to annoy people at Wizards. We don't want this to be like a cease and desist or lawsuit kind of situation. We just want to say, hey, the Southlands is this rich setting. Fifth edition is a fun, fun new rule set. You know, here's some stuff for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and for backers who are uh, are interested in just the monster part or just supporting the fifth edition conversion, we've got a couple of reward tiers that are pretty much just hey, I want the bestiary, right? I just want the monsters. Um, and frankly, I shouldn't say this, but I always say this. You know, 
it, we need like 20 more people to show up to make, <laughs> to make me go do the best year, but there's no requirement that they actually back the project for a ton of money, right? <laughs> it could be like 20 people for a dollar each. <laughs> and I'm like, our audience is gamers. Why haven't people figured out? It's like, you know, I just show up, I pledge a dollar, and I still count. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but most people show up and they say, oh, this all looks awesome. And your best year is especially awesome. I want that. Or I want the Arabian Nights adventures because, you know, I remember reading Zeb Cook and Jeff Grubb's stuff back in the Al-Kadim days. And I, I just want that thing. So um, the monster book is one that I get, like, hopping up and down, excited about every time. Um, the Pathfinder stuff is, is going fantastically. I'm a little worried that we're going to get, like, you know, 500 or 1,000 monster submissions. Um, <laughs> But surprisingly, because the bestiary is still like 20 people away, and I'm like, we're totally going to get there. But a lot of people have said, yeah, I don't know if you're actually going to do the monster thing. I'm like, oh, we are so doing the monster <laughs> thing. <laughs> I'm going to make it happen if I have to create 20 sock puppet accounts myself. We are doing this book. Uh, <laughs> and it's terrible, right? As a publisher, I should just be like, nope. No, not going to do it unless people really show up and support it. <laughs> the fan in me is just... I really want the monster book. <laughs> well, please, please support it. <laughs> you can count on the fact that after this interview, you will be at least one person closer. So uh, I'm just trying to figure out uh, how much of my money I should give to you. But it sounds like it's all of it. So um, <laughs> that is that is the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> I really, I mean, I really dinosaurus for reference art. You know, we'd be all over that too. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Well, and the chance to submit monsters, I think, is great. But also the chance to to really have great pulp adventure is awesome. You know? Yeah. We have a whole series of extras that we've unlocked. We've unlocked 15 or 16 stretch goals. And three of those are villainous cults, (laughs) right? They're, They're like demon cults. And they're all like easy to drop in anyway. They're not Midgard specific. They're like the Emerald Tablet, the, the people who got their hands on the tablets of Hermes and you know, have gone on to do bad things with them. And uh, the Hand of Nakresh, the god of thieves and wizards. Well, what kind of plots could they be up to? <laughs> uh, and the most pulptastic one of all is called Servants of the White Ape. Ooh. <laughs> and it's like... All right, King Kong's little albino children, right? It's, it's madness deep in the darkest um, ruins of a, a fallen city. So it's like, okay, that cult, that cult could go anywhere. That's pretty good. And <laughs> we're just going to keep going with, with like high pulp, um, high utility, frankly, uh, and high flavor uh, stretch goals like this. So... Everything we do, we're trying to make sure uh, people are going to have a blast and get to use. And that's part of the reason why we do outreach things like the the 5th edition Monsters, because we want to make sure people there have, you know, an opportunity to do stuff. And and, and I don't want to call it Galarian outreach exactly, because Galarian <laughs> doesn't need any help. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, if you're running your Mummy's Mask campaign mm-hmm. and you're like, damn it, I'm sure one of my players has read all of this installment. I just want to surprise him, right? Oh, what's in this Southland's best year? Oh, look, a lost sit, a map, and some key encounters. Huh, he doesn't know any of this stuff, right? <laughs> it's like you can just drop that on someone um, 
and and your adventure path has taken a, a nice turn and surprised your players. Yeah. Yeah, and that's I, I, I love it. I love that it's adventure for adventure's sake. I wanna be hunted by a spinosaurus and at the same time I'm terrified. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> These I, all of the monsters are kinda like that. I mean the crystal demons or the crystalline demons live in the salt mines out in the deep desert. Uh the Titanoboa is like the world's largest constrictor snake from 200 million years ago brought back to life in this gaming form. Uh, we've got a venomous mummy that I'm real <laughs> fond of. Uh, she's related, to, uh, those mummies are related to the cult of Selket, the scorpion goddess, who is another Egyptian figure. But when we've dealt with in Cobalt Press a bunch, we did a little blog article on her some years ago. And there's been like a cult of hers kicking around on the fringes. So I mean, it's just it all goes into the stew. It all goes into the mix. Um, a lot of it's going to be heavily play tested. And we already hit the the stretch goal that says we're going to do full hero lab support for all this stuff. Hey. Yeah, which is one of those goals where everyone was like on day one. So where's the hero lab support? I'm like we haven't made our first funding goal yet. <laughs> I don't think I can commit because the amount of work required to get those data files for Hero Lab mm. like created, tested, and supported. I didn't know how much work it was until we did it the first time. <laughs> and I'm like, I'll do it. But we need to have at least 500 backers before I think about doing that again. <laughs> and we got there, right? We're well past 500 oh, backers yeah. now. But, uh, but yeah, full Hero Lab support, and I, I know it's worth it because we're going to have a lot of people playing in this setting, and, uh, and so many of them use Hero Lab. So. If you are playing Pathfinder, what sort of great crunchy stuff is within these books? It looks like there's a, a lot of that, um, too. In addition to, you know, lots and lots of monsters, which we already covered, uh, there's a ton on the player side. Um, the player crunch falls sort of into two or three categories. We have new races, uh, new styles and schools of magic, and we have... Um, what's my third thing? Oh, yeah, archetypes. We're doing a bunch of new archetypes. So the new races are like, okay, you've got playable gnolls with a whole like 17-page supplement on playing a PC gnoll. Uh, we've got a section on the Azimar um, and a whole like 16-page supplement on the Azimar is included as a bonus. Um, We've got the Tusculi, who are sort of hive insect folk, um, and generally really evil. Yeah, I keep calling them the drow of the setting because they're the bad guys who carry <laughs> off, like, you know, villagers from nearby to their hive. And, you know, they're pretty dark, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're all lawful evil, and they, they, everyone's terrified of the Tusculi because they will eat you, right? They're, <laughs> they're horrible. Um, which makes them a great pulp monster, but they're also a playable character race. And that's why I call them the drow, because the only ones that are playable, of course, are the ones who say, I don't know, I don't, I don't really feel like kidnapping and eating another villager. I, I think there's a better way, right? <laughs> they, they leave the hive and they, uh, they wander off and, and try and find something else. So they're like exile characters, right? Um, I think those are going to be fun to play. I know the people who enjoyed playing like the Thrykreen back in the Dark Sun days would get a kick out of the Tusculi as well. Um, and so they're a new race we're messing around with. There's also a race of Weir Lions that uh, are technically a stretch goal we haven't hit yet, but they're already all over the setting. <laughs> um, 
There's some cat folk. I mentioned Bastet. So there's a number of options that you wouldn't see otherwise. There's a form of raven folk that are have been in the Midgard setting forever, but these are the the raven folk of Horus. So they're uh, they're a little more militant than the the ragtag bunch that follow Odin up in the north. So that's the races. The new schools of magic are things like lotus magic, which. Uh, can't say too much because Ben's still writing it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's hieroglyphic magic, which is similar to rune magic or incantations, symbols, unlock power. Um, hieroglyphic magic actually has some nice Egyptian roots and a really strong system that comes out of the deep magic book um, from last year. So the mechanics for that are all good. Um, I think those will both be very popular forms of magic. We'll have uh, magic items. There are certain schools and new spells, like each one of those demonic cults I mentioned earlier, right? They've all got magic that's unique to them. Yeah, because, come on, you're a cult. You have secret lore, right? <laughs> if you pull the tablets of Thoth Hermes, you, you, you're reading the Emerald Tablets? Yeah, all right, you know stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and and the players who capture this stuff, I mean, the tablets themselves aren't evil. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just how you choose to use that magic. So there's a whole thing there. Um, yeah, I, I think there's going to be plenty there for spellcasters. And we're also, in the archetype section that I mentioned, uh, we're doing a bunch of support for martial characters. We've got a We've got a sort of elemental paladin who summons an elemental companion, um, very much a desert warrior paladin. We've got sword dancers who are very nimble uh, fighter archetypes. Um, we've got stuff in there for oracles. Um, we've got a blind archer. <laughs> really, I'm the mechanics we're still arguing about, but I, I'm really excited about the blind archer because it's it's so distinctive and it's such a cool character. I mean... It's hard not to be a badass if you take that as your archetype. <laughs> a personal bias toward archery classes in general, probably because I used to shoot when I was like 10, right? Down at the local park, just get a bow and arrow and try and hit the target. But I think, and Robin Hood is still cool. So, I mean, the archer characters get some goodies. Um, and then we've got a few, a few others, uh, like Bloodlines. Um, we've got a few rogue things and, um, and some racial twists, especially for southern dwarves, like Egyptian-style dwarves, um, and for our new, new races, because obviously like the Tusculi and the, the Knolls need a bunch of support uh, in terms of mechanics. So yeah, there is a ton of crunchy stuff. My Hero Lab... Uh, team is probably weeping as they hear like, you already told us there were so many monsters and now there's all this player crunch too we will never get it all done but uh, i'm just gonna have to say you know you'll get to use it when it's done and it's all cool so um no it the hero lab files are going to be packed um and kickstarter backers actually get the hero lab files at a big discount they're going to be like $15 files because they're going to be massive um, when they go on sale to the public next year. But Hero Lab, uh, uh, the Kickstarter backers get them for nine, right? If you're a Hero Lab fan, you basically save 40% just by being a, a backer on the Kickstarter. And again, I'll mention you could just be a backer for $1 <laughs> <laughs> and then add nine. And you, you know, now you're backing for 10, you get the Hero Lab files for like five bucks off the top. So 
I should I should stop telling people about it. <laughs> well, and and I will say for just a, a few more dollars than one, you can get everything on PDF. You can get some print stuff, and you have a lot of packages here, so you really can pick and choose what you want and and go after that. Um, stuff that we don't even we haven't don't have time to talk about, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Like, we're minting some of our own coinage. We've got uh, most of the packages include like six extra PDFs that are these demon cults and and uh, racial stuff. Uh, <laughs> we've got a ton of others that I think we're going to hit in the next couple of days. Uh, you get the bestiary, you get the adventure book. I mean, the vizier level is is a pretty you know financially it seems like a bunch, but then you start adding it up, and I'm like, well, actually, I'm getting you know three print books and. 10 PDFs and a set of this and I'm getting that and it's like kind of a steal. <laughs> it depends on where you're at, right? I mean, if you're if you're really just interested in the core book, we also have really slim down stuff where it's like, here, you get the book in print mm-hmm. and you get your shipping for free and you're done, right? It's right. like, if that's what you want, there it is. Um, so yeah, we try to have something for everybody. We're not trying to make it complicated. But uh, you know how it is with Kickstarter. Once you start making backer levels and people say, could you make a special Canadian postage <laughs> level? And we did that last time. We did everything with separate postage. No, we're not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we didn't do well with that. Um, but, but we ship internationally and uh, the, the digital ones certainly, you know, people are going to start getting rewards uh, a couple weeks after uh, the Kickstarter closes because the Demon Cult stuff is all already written. The race PDFs are separate and already written. Um, so, you know, if you back it now, you start getting rewards like first week of November. So you don't even have to wait. Yeah. It's uh, it's amazing, and it's clear you're very passionate about the project. I feel like I could talk to you about this all afternoon because I love I it really, too. Really, I will talk your ear off. You're gonna have to cut me off at some point because it takes me back to like some of the best adventures I played in and some of the stuff I designed when I was just getting into the field. I mean, yeah, I'm taking all my old Alcadim chops and I'm calling on people I know who who love like Arabian Nights and Egyptian and pulp themes. Um, Hey, I mean, three of the writers are the guys who wrote the Hamanoptera box set. Steve Kenson, who your listeners will know from his Mutants and Masterminds work, oh, yeah. uh, and C.A. Suleiman, who did uh, Mummy the Cursed for, for White Wolf, for Onyx Path. He's the developer there for the mummies, uh, Mummy line. And Ari Marmel, who's mostly a novelist now, but who has done work for Cobalt Press in the past. And um, it's actually his fault. We have the, uh, <laughs> the insect folk who obey their arch-demonic patron. He's the one who created that arch-devil in the first place. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so there's callbacks here for, to stuff that's like eight years old for, uh, for people who've been following Cobalt Press a long time. And that's part of what brings the richness to this, right? We have a lot of playtime invested in this material. It's not being written sort of in a rush. Um, and actually, we've been working on this book for most of a year now. So, yeah, it, it shows, right? We, we're, we're sinking a lot of love into it. And we hope, uh, we hope people recognize that and... and want to see what we're doing yeah absolutely and i i you can tell just from this interview you can tell so guys we want to see the bestiary made go ahead go back the project go check out everything we're going to link you up in the show notes or you can go to kickstarter.com just search for cobalt press or southlands and you'll be able to find it um is there anything else wolfgang that we should mention before we head out Wow, I feel like I've I've rattled on on all the things I love. 
Um, you know, I, I think the only other thing to mention is, you know, the Kickstarter ends on October 17th. That's a Friday. So after that, it's too late. You're going to have to pay full retail. Yes, yeah. So you want to get in, especially because it sounds like some things might be exclusive just to backers after the fact. So they don't know what they're doing with that 5th edition bestiary yet, guys. So you may want to get in and back the project. Yes, uh, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but it, it's great. It's awesome. Thank you so much for coming back on. I mean, I can't I can't thank you enough. People were calling for you to come back, and uh, and I was one of them. So thank you. Sure. I am going to go. I what you're doing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm going to go back this project right now, and I'm going to think about what kind of monster I want to submit to you guys. So Awesome. I look forward to it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Wolfgang. Thank you, James. Okay, guys. Well, that's going to do it for us over here at the round table. But before we go, where can people find our panel? Rudy Basso, where can people find you? You can follow me on Twitter at Rudy Basso, R-U-D-Y-B-A-S-S-O. Thank you. And you should follow him if you want to have some entertaining tweets thrown your way. He's a funny guy. Dave Gibson, where can people find you? I'm on Twitter at DNDJester, and I have a blog webcomic at 5MWD.com, 5-Minute Workday. And if you like funny things, you should check out Dave Gibson's webcomic. Barrack Blackburn. <laughs> uh, Actsofgeek.com uh, is a site I help. Uh, well, I write a bunch of stuff where I usually have like three or four articles up each week, and we do podcasts as well. We're playtesting a uh, game. We just released the the second sort of podcast of the playtest there. Uh, so you can look for me there, and that's a fine place to find me. That's right, and you can check out his article uh, about his own Tarask takedown, uh, which was much more successful than the one we did here at the Roundtable. Um, so you should check that out. Uh, Acts of Geek is a great website. And guys, if you have a question or topic you'd like to hear us discuss on the Roundtable, you can reach out to me on Twitter at James Intercasso. That's at J-A-M-E-S-I-N-T-R-O-C-A-S-O. Or you can leave us a comment on the Tome Show's website, thetomeshow.com. Or you can reach out to these guys and any of the ways they have expressed, you may reach out to them. And a quick shameless plug for my blog, which is all about Exploration Age, the 5th edition campaign setting that I'm building. It's at worldbuilderblog.me. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening, and thanks to Rudy, Dave, and Barak. Also, many thanks to Jeff Greiner for letting us join the Tome Show lineup. Our theme music, which you're listening to right now, was composed by Eric Michaels. Don't forget to go to thetomeshow.com and use the affiliate links whenever you shop on Amazon or D&D Classics to help support the show. Keep on rolling and keep on listening to The Roundtable.